Hey, what up? Hello, everybody. Alex Pitko here, a centered from reality podcast, and it's Tuesday, October 3rd, about a 10th through October now. I'm going to keep doing this. I'm going to keep doing a slow countdown to November. I don't know why. Don't ask questions. I will, I will be 29 by November, so... Yeah, maybe I won't do that countdown. Oh, geez. God, so close to 30, I can almost taste it. That's terrifying. But anyways, um, a lot to get to today. I want to start by talking about Trump's recent fraud trial happening in New York City. Trump is back in court. And what happened is yesterday he appeared in New York in a state civil court, basically for a civil fraud case. And... CBS notes here in quotes, the Trumps and their company are accused of fraud, falsification of business records, issuing false financial statements, and conspiracy, among other allegations. The Attorney General, Letitia James, has accused Trump of overstating his wealth by billions of dollars, billions, and the value of many properties by hundreds of millions, while seeking loans. So when it's good for him, he overinflates his wealth. And when it's good for him, he underinflates his wealth. So, you know, he goes back and forth. And this is civil fraud. And I don't want to stay on this too long, but basically last week, the presiding judge agreed with the prosecutor's central argument, which was that Trump had indeed committed fraud. And so now the judge is going to take up the rest of the chaos Um, This involves the falsification of business records, and they're going to decide the penalties. And as I said, Letitia James, who Trump is called racist, he always seems to call African-Americans and Latinos, etc. racist. But yeah, she is a, a black woman that he is calling a racist attorney general, blah, blah, blah. But she wants to fine Trump $250 million and bar him from serving as a corporate director in the state. So... I mean, this is a pretty damn big one for Trump because basically she would, in a sense, bar him from doing business in New York. And as we know, he is kind of a creature of New York. So that's a pretty ba- pretty damn big deal if you want to get to the, the details of it. And The Economist also notes that last week, in quotes, the judge, can- the judge canceled Mr. Trump's business licenses in New York which allow the Trump organization to operate in the state and ordered a receiver to oversee them for now. Eventually, his assets in New York may have to be sold. Whew. That's that's some serious stuff. And so Trump actually showed up for this one. I watched highlights of the day one in New York on Monday, so yesterday. And Trump showed up. And I'm going to give you a hot take. I'm going to go out on, on a limb here and basically say that Trump is going to take this one more seriously than any of the other ones. The reason I say that is because, well, he is denying all the allegations and is fighting back. He, According to reports, he was quite involved with his attorneys, at least yesterday. The trial continues today, so we'll see. But there's good reason he's appealing this because they call this kind of the corporate death penalty. So if, if he ends up getting punished and found guilty... This could really be the nail in the coffin for the Trump organization, generally speaking. And I also think that we have to remember Trump is a narcissist. It's very obvious he's a narcissist at this point. And I would argue that he's going to keep fighting this case because this case isn't like the classified documents one. This one's not like the Stormy Daniels hush payment one. This one's not like January 6th. He denies all of those. 
But this one's about his image, his wealth, pretty much everything he's built his life around over the last decades. And so if all of this comes crumbling down, this is like a narcissist's worth, worst nightmare. It's going to say he's not worth as much as he says he is. It's going to say his company is not worth as much as he said it is. And it's going to make his company basically seize to be able to operate in the state that it was really successful in. So this case could rock his world. And so I think he's going to be involved in it because he's known as the businessman, Trump business, the acumen of a, gen- a gentleman and all this stuff. And so this would bring his world down and he's going to do anything he can to just not let that happen. And yeah, he was pretty fiery, attacking Letitia James as racist, saying this was rigged. It's about stealing the election, election fraud, all that stuff. So we're going to have to keep following it. But this one is not looking particularly great. Uh, Eric Trump, by the way, was in the background when Trump gave a press conference, and he also looked a little bit worried. Now, (laughs) Trump's lawyers are basically arguing that this is how real estate works. CNN has a piece kind of based off of the press conference after day one, and it writes here, with the former president looking on, Trump's lawyers argued Monday that the attorney general's case was flawed, saying that the differences, sorry, the differences in valuations were just part of the commercial real estate business. Trump's attorney, some guy named Christopher Keis, I guess, basically said there was no intent to defraud, and there were in quotes, no victims in the case. His argument, which I find is a unique one, I don't know if it's a great one, but it's a unique one, He pointed to documents from Deutsche Bank uh, showing the bank valued Trump's net worth $2 billion less than Trump did, but still underwrote the loan for Trump anyways. Kind of a game of whataboutism, finger pointing. It's going to be interesting. Trump claims it's all a scam and that he's already cleared with like 80% of what the charges involve. It should be interesting to see. Again, we have to remember this is not a criminal case. It's a civil case. But again, this could just be a blow to Trump's narcissistic ego, which in a sense could be worse for him than criminal charges. Moving on to, I guess, uh, another candidate in the 2024 race. I want to talk about RFK Jr. Currently running as a Democrat, but things could be changing. So it's kind of interesting, a little background. I remember I was on a run early last week, and I was listening to the great Fifth Column podcast. You know, they're all technically libertarians on it, but they've all disavowed the Libertarian Party because they think it's become quite right-wing and not actually attached to what libertarianism means to them. And I think it was Matt Walsh, one of the hosts of the Fifth Column, he was talking about how there's a New York Times piece that came out fairly recently that talked about actually how the Libertarian Party had approached RFK Jr. to run with them, to run as a third party. And of course, they laughed on the fifth column. Camille, uh, Moynihan, and Walsh all were, or Welsh, sorry, (laughs) were all laughing. Because (laughs) RFK Jr., at least in my definition of a libertarian, someone that believes in small government, questions the state, believes in local rights, believes in pretty much uncontrolled free speech, etc., He doesn't fit that definition to me because in the 90s, for example, he did not believe in First Amendment protections for climate deniers. That's just one that always comes to mind with me. But I just find it interesting that this guy who is kind of um, authoritarian progressive on some issues like climate, but then also like kind of an anarchist and, and a libertarian when it comes to foreign policy, and then also like a big government liberal when it comes to dealing with banks, debt, healthcare. It's interesting to me that the Libertarian Party would come to him if that report is true. 
And what it shows to me, first off, is that clearly the new right sees libertarianism as more of kind of a anarcho-capitalist movement. And they're kind of down to look for anyone who's anti-establishment and is kind of against what they call the woke left, funding Ukraine, identitarian politics, kind of all that shit. And so I just kind of find it quite fascinating that this guy who is definitely not a libertarian, they were approaching. But interestingly enough, it actually seems like there is merit to him running as a third party or as an independent. And he apparently has an announcement coming on October 9th. And I'm going to play the ad. He doesn't actually say he's going to be announcing a break from the Democratic Party and running as a third party. But it's pretty damn obvious because it sounds like a campaign ad. It's not like he's dropping out or anything. So it sounds like a campaign ad, but uh, we know he's obviously not being welcomed in by the Democratic Party. So, yeah, he's definitely going that way. So let's play this ad, and then I'll give you some more thoughts on the other side. I'm going to be in Philadelphia on October 9th to make a major announcement at the very birthplace of our nation. I'm not going to tell you right now exactly what that announcement will be. I can say, though... But if you've been waiting to come to one of my public events, this will be the one to come to. I'll be speaking about a sea change in American politics and what your part and my part is in that change. A lot of Americans who had previously given up any hope that real change would ever come through the American electoral process have begun to find new hope in my candidacy. And I understand the deeply felt concern that people have about the way corruption has overtaken our government. It's in the executive branch. It's in Congress. It's in the leadership of both political parties. By the way, he effectively, very effectively, shows Mitch McConnell, Menendez, Trump, Biden, kind of blaming everyone. Kind of interesting take. And so some people feel a kind of cynicism alongside the hope, or they lose hope entirely because they've been disappointed so many times. I want to tell you now what I've come to understand after six months of campaigning. There is a path to victory. The hope we are feeling isn't some kind of trick of the mind. We all recognize that there's a genuine possibility of national transformation and its source is the goodness of the American people. Our government may be crooked, but our people are kind, brave, and caring. That goodness is stronger than the divisions that are keeping us all apart. I see it every day on the campaign trail, and the more I see it, the more I trust it. And the more I trust it, the more the path to victory becomes visible. So how are we going to win against the established Washington interests? It's not through playing the game by the corrupt rules that the corrupt powers and the best... It's by running third party or independent. Oops, we'll continue. Interests have rigged to keep us all in their thrall. Instead, we're going to have to rewrite the assumptions and change the habits of American politics. We're going to tap into a mighty surge of people power to reclaim an honest, peaceful, just, and prosperous America. So I am inviting you to join me in Philadelphia on October 9th. There I'll share with you our path. My path of running independent, third party. To the White House and how we can all participate in healing our nation. Okay, so the ad goes on a little bit longer, but I, I think that's the, the gist of it. And to me, it sounds like a, an announcement. Now, I will say that if you're just watching that ad and you don't know much about RFK Jr., it's quite an appealing message, especially with how divisive and kind of vitriolic our politics have gotten. 
Now, I have to say the positive of seeing RFK Jr. do this media tour where he's been on every podcast from Joe Rogan to Lex Friedman to Bill Maher to Breaking Points to Fox News to CNN is that, just to name a few, by the way, is that I have really got a good taste of what he's like. And he's a complex guy. Like, there are definitely some things that I think he touches on well. Like, I think he understands that we have a meaning crisis in this country. We have a debt crisis in this country. Our genera- My generation, millennials and younger, are developing less wealth and more insecurity than previous generations. I, I think he touches on some serious issues. But then for every couple issues he has that are really good, like BlackRock, attacking BlackRock for basically destroying the real estate market. But for issues like that, he then gets into this extreme anti-vax type of talking points. He also completely buys into Chinese and Russian propaganda, talking about how the Ukrainians escalated this crisis in the invasion of Ukraine, how the Russians were provoked, how more Ukraine, like, like almost like five to one Ukrainians have died to Russians. Like, I just hear enough of that. And some people will say, well, I agree with him on like 60% of the stuff. I know he's anti-vax, he's anti-Ukraine, he's peddled some anti-Semitic views over the years as well. That's okay, because the, the rest of the stuff's good. And I can understand why people would say that, but to me, that 40% or whatever percent it may be to you, is it's pretty strong in him, and it's pretty wacky. And you also just have to look at the money. It was, it was first Steve Bannon, of all people, who propped him up, Roger Stone, From everything I've read, Stephen Bannon, who is a complete far-right nut and I think is responsible for a lot of the rise of the far populist right around the world, he basically is so cynical that he wants to burn down the system and he wanted to try to embarrass President Biden in the primary. So he used Kennedy's inflated early poll standings as a reason to treat RFK Jr. as something real and threatening while he's just a fringe candidate. It was kind of a troll by a guy like Steve Bannon, who's literally said he wants to burn the system down. He wants to pull like a Lenin, a reactionary Lenin type of thing. And I think that's where RFK Jr. is at right now. He's more popular with the far right than the left. And that's that's my issue with him. I mean, he's been on Fox News. House Republicans invited him to testify about COVID. Like he has become a pawn of the right. And that's an issue I have that it's really hard to shake. And I understand this is, a, I think, a very troubled guy who has had a difficult life. From everything I've seen, I think he's actually a genuinely nice human being. All the interviews I've seen with him has give, have given me no reason to think he's a bad person. But it's just the people that he associates with in politics and that 40 or 50% of his views that I think are quite dangerous. Anyways, sorry, I got off on a little tangent there. But basically the conversation now is... Okay, he's teasing a major announcement. Mediate has a huge report that says it looks like he's going to announce a third-party independent run. He's, he, you know, the, the Democratic primary has not allowed him to debate, so he's just going to go off on his own. And there's a lot of interesting discussions now about, okay, he runs as a third party. He's, he's going to hurt Biden more, right? Because he's a Democrat. He's a Kennedy, blah, blah, blah. And... You know, the more polling I've seen, the more analyses I've seen from different experts, the more articles I've read, I think this backfires and hurts Republicans or is a complete wash, one of the two. I, but I, I think the third and least likely option is or outcome of this is that it hurts Biden. 
Kennedy's a lifelong Democrat from probably the most famous Democratic family of all time. But the thing is, is that there's polling, really recent polling from Quinnipiac University, and it does show that Republicans like Kennedy by a 30-point margin, that is 48% favorable to 18% unfavorable. So almost half of Republicans have a favorable opinion of him. I would guess that might even be more. Only 18% actually have a strong unfavorable opinion. But Democrats on the other side actually really don't like him. That same Quinnipiac poll shows that just 14% of Democrats have a favorable opinion of him compared with 57% who have an unfavorable. So we're looking at a negative 43% favorability to unfavorability on the Democratic side. It's almost like literally inverted. You have 48 to 18 Republicans and 14 to 57. So there's actually more disgust for him on the left than there is support for him on the right. So it's a really interesting thing to look at here. And going even further, even among the GOP field itself, the kind of crazy thing here is that there are a lot of Republican voters that like RFK Jr. more than they like some of the other candidates. Now, this does not count Trump or Ron DeSanctimonious, but the Wall Street, or sorry, not the Wall Street Journal, the Washington Post notes here in quotes, they even like him better than entrepreneur Vivek Ramaswamy and former Vice President Mike Pence, and about as much as former South Carolina Governor Nikki Haley and Senator Tim Scott. Only Trump and Florida Governor Ron DeSantis are clearly more popular than RFK Jr. on the right. So that's really fascinating to me. And I mean, it is almost like a perfect summary of kind of the Bannon-esque burn-it-all-down mentality because it does look like this could backfire. Could. And I'll get into maybe some counterpoints to that as well. But now the next question is, okay, RFK Jr. runs as an independent. He can't go like Green Party because they have Cornell West already and also they don't have ballot access in all 50 states. That's kind of the big question mark here that the Washington Post brings up. It says here in an article, One big one is that we don't know what kind of ballot access Kennedy might get in key states, which is always a hurdle for any third-party candidate. Then this also takes us to the New York Times, which I talked about earlier, and it had reported that he'd been in talks with the Libertarian Party. Obviously, that could help him run on a larger scale and get ballot access. And, you know, by the way, if he runs as the libertarian candidate, they're pretty aligned with the right wing more than the left wing now. So (laughs) who does that take votes away from? Now, the interesting thing, too, is that there's a third party ballot access expert that I was reading, Richard Winger. And he said, in quotes, the vast majority of states have fairly easy ballot access requirements for presidential candidates who run outside the two major parties. But Winger also added that it would be far easier for ballot access path if he runs as the Libertarian nominee. I don't think he runs as the Libertarian nominee as of now. I don't know if he even really could identify with that side of politics, to be completely honest. But it it would make more sense because, see, the weird thing is, is that I know a lot of kind of center left and center right, maybe Libertarian curious people that do think of him as that. I try to send articles to break that down. And I think Liz Wolf of Reason Magazine, obviously a libertarian publication, I subscribe, I think it's actually a pretty good publication, but she has a good line in her article that tries to debunk the support of him being a libertarian. 
She writes here, he's fundamentally a big government liberal. By the way, before I continue, I don't I don't disagree with some of these things he supports, but if you're going to be a libertarian, you have to be principled at least enough to be called a libertarian, in my opinion. Anyways, Liz Wolf writes, he supports AOC's Green New Deal. He favors heavy-handed government intrusion in the realm of environmental policy. He's against nuclear energy. He favors massive wealth redistribution, saying in quotes, I don't think huge disparities in wealth are healthy for our country or healthy for democracy. He also wants pharmaceutical companies to burn in hell, and he seems to believe in an almost Alex Jones-esque concept of the deep state. He correctly points out that the government and big businesses have an unholy alliance, but he doesn't understand that too much regulation is the root cause. He just thinks large companies are bad, and he wants to break them up. This is not just anti-capitalist. It is also somewhat anti-democratic. He says he's concerned about government spending, and he throws out wild figures to make his point. He says, for example, we spent $16 trillion on the lockdown we wasted, got nothing for it. $8 trillion on the Ukraine war. That's $24 trillion that they had to print to pay for nothing. All those numbers are false, by the way. But anyways, you get my point. Is like She just talks about how it's surreal that libertarians are embracing RFK Jr. Um, she, she quotes later, he's publicly fantasized about jailing his political opponents and cracking down on free speech for years. At the People's Climate March in 2014, RFK Jr. said this, in quotes, they should be in jail. I think they should be enjoying three hots and a cot at The Hague with all the other war criminals who they are. Do I think the Koch brothers should be prosecuted for reckless endangerment? Absolutely. And the thing is, these are all violations of the First Amendment. He also is not a free speech advocate. Liz Wolf writes later in the article, he's not a free speech advocate, and he's not especially thoughtful about the principles or people he endorses. After all, this is a man who once heaped praise on Hugo Chavez, touting the socialist dictator's bogus literacy programs and alleged commitment to democracy. Anyways, I just say that because it's libertarians themselves who are saying he's not a libertarian. And I mean, he doesn't back free speech. He seems to like socialist dictators. He does not agree in other forms of energy other than renewable energy. And he's a big government guy. And he also believes that more regulation is the answer, not just breaking down corruption. So what I mean here is it would just kind of be a travesty if he actually joins the libertarian ticket here. But I do think ballot access is going to be an issue for him running as a third party. So I would not at all be surprised if he did go down that road, unfortunately. Now, the last thing I'll say on RFK Jr., because I'm going a little long here and have gone on some tangents, there is something to think because I, I think in a vacuum, yes, he takes more away from Republicans than Democrats in the 2024 election. Just because of what I've talked about, he's appealing to that conspiratorial anti-establishment, anti-vaccine type of person who doesn't believe maybe mainstream agendas, is more likely to question narratives, etc. But the thing is, is that that base, which could be RFK Jr.'s potential base, is pretty much glued to Trump at this point. So I would never be able to think that, oh, they're just going to jump to RFK Jr. from Trump. So that's the thing. It's also kind of like the RFK Jr. I mean, not the RFK Jr. The Vivek Ramaswamy thing is like Vivek also has the same type of base voter as Trump. They're not all just going to jump to Vivek and ditch Trump. So it probably means they just don't vote for the guy. I think I think if RFK Jr. early on had of maybe been quiet about the anti-vax stuff and shut up about Ukraine and maybe just focused on the environmental stuff and government corruption and inequality rising debt, 
Those type of issues, I think he could have had an appeal to Democrats, but by now he's kind of just associated with kind of a horseshoe conspiratorial populism. Now, I I will say that I do actually understand RFK Jr.'s anger at the DNC. They should have allowed him and Marianne Williamson to debate. I think it's illiberal and anti-democratic to not hold debates when you're literally going to have an election to elect the president of the United States. Donald Trump should be debating as well. But again, we can't have nice things, and here we are. We'll move on. At the end of the episode, I want to talk about (laughs) the House currently debating the vote to oust Kevin McCarthy. Matt Gaetz has become a gift to the Democrats and a terrorist to Republicans. It is chaotic. It's quite ironic. We'll talk about that at the end. But first, I want to talk about the Supreme Court and how it's starting its new term up and how I think there could be some very, very important decisions coming down fairly soon, or at least within the next couple couple months to a year. So, SCOTUS has been in recess for a while, and now it's coming back, and we're going to see some very impactful cases. The court returned on October 2nd, and we're going to see battles ranging from gun rights to employment discrimination involving gender, social media regulation, mainly involving government employees. We will all see some fun questions about voting rights, abortion pills, affirmative action, pretty much decisions by nine people on almost every issue in the country right now. It's always good when you have a pretty divided court of nine people deciding basic things like abortion and affirmative action and gender discrimination at the at your job. <laughs> always fun, right? And anyways... I guess the one thing we do know is that the court has said already that it's not going to hear that lower court's case basically saying that Trump is ineligible to be president because he violated the Constitution after January 6th. That's that 14th Amendment argument that we've been hearing about that was going through lower courts. As of now, the Supreme Court will not hear that one. But that one aside, it's going to be a pretty chaotic term. And this is right as confidence in SCOTUS is at an all-time low. Prior to this episode, I was reading some, some numbers on it, and it's not good. According to an analysis in the GSS, which is the General Social Survey, that was conducted between 2021 and 2023, the public, in quotes, demonstrated waning confidence in the, in the Supreme Court in 2021. Just 26% reported a great deal of confidence in 2021, falling to 18% in 2022, which is an all-time low, since the GSS began recording this data in 1973. The study also says later on, in quotes, furthermore, 36% had hardly any confidence in the Supreme Court, the highest recorded since the GSS began. So the highest lows are what we're looking at right now. So not great. And I'm also worried that we may see the court become quite reactionary in this term, especially because of how divided and diverse it is in terms of political ideology. Also, we clearly have ethics violations coming down as well. So, I mean, for the sake of this podcast, we could cover a myriad of cases. But today, there are three that I want to talk about. And it's because they involve administrative law and the administrative state and how federal agencies work with the courts in in concept with our Constitution. And I want to talk about this because, first, I'm pretty interested in administrative law. I'm not a lawyer, but during my grad school days, I did take a lot of administrative law classes because 
studying public policy and public administration, you do need to understand judicial policies and administrative law and how different parts of the Constitution and different agencies work together, blah, blah, blah. So anyways, I've been really interested in the Chevron USA Inc. versus Natural Resources Defense Council decision from 1984. It's kind of known colloquially as the uh, Chevron decision. And it's a really important one for administrative independence and deference. It's called the Chevron Deference Doctrine, Chevron Doctrine, a lot of different names for it. And it's one that kind of still does have some sort of precedent now, even though there has been a change and there are groups, mainly on the right, that want to overturn this decision or try to chip away at it or reverse it. And basically the Chevron decision found that federal courts must defer to a federal agency's interpretation of an unclear statute or one that's maybe seen as being ambiguous that Congress delegated to the agency to administer. And this happens basically as long as it was explicit and whether or not the actions were intended to be ambiguous. I won't get into the weeds, but this was just an important decision because it pretty much created a test for courts to look at whether you grant an agency deference if Congress has granted them at least some ability to do so, basically. And since this decision came out in 84... The conservative side used to really embrace it and thought this was important. I think kind of the classical conservative justices would have more agreed with this. But over time, the conservative side has considered kind of whether or not the Chevron Doctrine should be reversed. And I would argue maybe over the last 10 years or so, we have seen them slowly chipping away at Chevron, not directly challenging it, but but chipping away at it. And there are three important cases that SCOTUS will be seeing this term. And they all kind of involve federal agencies and how much deference they're given. And I would argue that if the courts decide against upholding some of these Chevron and Chevron-like principles, that they could really transform how the federal government works. And I don't think that would be good. Of course, that's my opinion. Basically, a reversal of Chevron could let courts exercise authority to curb regulatory overreach when, for example, agencies basically make policy judgments on their own. Basically, they try to fill in the gaps when Congress maybe wasn't explicit about what was supposed to happen. And I could understand why you wouldn't want agencies just completely going against what the government or the Constitution wants. But as I'll get into in a minute, I don't think that's totally the case here either. But this would just really transform um, judicial authority, and I think federal agencies would have a lot less power to do things that they've been doing. And I guess it would just, in my opinion, give courts too much power. And I should also note, though, and I've kind of alluded to this already, that I don't think they would actually look to overturn Chevron. That's not what we're looking at. They would be slowly eroding its standing and precedent, I guess you could say. So the first one um, is the Consumer Financial Protection Bureau, the CFPV sorry, CFPB versus Community Financial Services Association of America. Jesus, those names flow off the tongue. But basically, the court is going to review a decision that is coming from the Fifth Circuit Court of Appeals, which, from my understanding, is one of the most conservative circuit courts in the country. And basically, this decision that was made in the Fifth Court of Appeals undercuts the CFPB, which is kind of a consumer watchdog agency that was established after the financial crisis in 2007, 2008, 
And it's meant to basically protect the consumer against predatory actions by different, you know, financial services and agencies, etc. And basically the fifth court ruled in quotes here that the CFB has an unconstitutional funding structure. And basically they argued that Article 1, Section 9 of the Constitution mandates that no money, in quotes, shall be drawn from the Treasury, but in consequence of appropriations made by law. And they are arguing that the CFPB has permanent funding stream, not by Congress, but by the Federal Reserve. And the plaintiffs are saying that this financing is illegitimate, according to the Constitution. I am not a, enough of a constitutional scholar to know whether or not that is right, but I am giving you the analysis based on what I know. And basically, if the justices on the Supreme Court do find that what the CFPB is doing and how it's getting funds violates the Constitution, basically they can break up this agency's power overnight, basically. And everything the agency's done over its 12 years, and it's done some good things, cracking down on predatory lending breaking up fraudulent debt collection schemes. All of this could be deemed unlawful too. And so it stops protecting the consumer and actually doing some really good things that at one point did not even exist. And The Economist writes here, catastrophic economic consequences could happen should challengers to the CFPB prevail. This could include severe instability in the mortgage market to uncertainty about the status of the agent's lending rules. Fun stuff, right? The other case is... The Securities and Exchange Commission, SEC, versus Jarksy. This is actually another Fifth Circuit decision. And this is actually coming in the autumn. I'm not actually sure what time of autumn it's coming, but it seems to be coming fairly soon. And this case involves a guy, George Jarksy. He has a company, Patriot 28. <laughs> and basically, his company appeared before an ALG, which is an administrative law judge in 2014. And it was alleged that they had committed securities fraud involving two of their hedge funds. And eventually, this uh, administrative law judge did find Mr. Jarksy and his company, Patriot 28, li uh, yeah, liable. And Jarksy sued the SEC, and he said that its enforcement procedures were unconstitutional. A Fifth Circuit panel found that Jarksy had a Seventh Amendment right to a jury trial, and Basically, they found also that Congress had given the SEC too much power and that ALJs are too hard to remove. From my understanding, there is probably some argument there that ALJs are too hard to remove because they're an appointed position. It gets complex, but then I would also say that the SEC, maybe it's maybe it's granted too much deference, but it, it, it there's a lot of people with expertise and this branch, or sorry, this commission, does know what it's doing more than, say, outside judicial actors. And, sorry that got cut off, but um, the, the third case is called Loperbright Enterprises versus Raimondo. And this one actually is a direct, direct challenge to Chevron USA Inc. versus the NRDC. And basically this one is going to challenge the whole idea that Deference can be afforded to agencies and it gives them their own interpretations of ambiguous laws. This is all could be just completely blown up overnight. And just to add some context, Neil Gorsuch, one of the justices on the Supreme Court, set 
sorry, he characterized Chevron as judicial abdication and argued that although courts now seldom invoke it, the ruling deserves a tombstone no one can miss. So it'll be interesting to see. And yeah, people like him for sure are going to be against upholding that decision. And I even think Justice Roberts is as well. So yeah, the, the court is definitely at the advantage of overturning this. Um, I would argue though, that the Chevron decision and allowing agencies to deal with ambiguous rulemaking has created more stability, accountability, and political participation. And it's just given agency independence to bureaucrats and experts that actually know what they are doing inside of these agencies instead of having these less precise umbrella rules where judges that sometimes don't know what they're talking about or at least don't understand the agency and its inner workings or for political reasons can then make decisions for these agencies. I, I'm going to go out on a limb here and say that it seems like this is kind it kind of goes in line with the whole idea of making the federal government and the executive branch more in control of the civil service that is growing more and more popular on the new right. You don't really want agency interdependence. You don't really want agency independence. And there's all there's this new skepticism of the deep state. So I I think if you overturned Chevron, it would give judges, potentially the federal government, more control over agencies. And I don't really like that personally. We will move on, though. Um, we're pretty much done for the day. But before we're out of here, by the time you're listening, there actually might be a vote to oust McCarthy. Maybe he won't be speaker anymore. His nine months could be up by then. It could be an historic break for him and not in a good way. But anyways, I did just want to briefly mention that the House has voted to proceed to vote to oust McCarthy. I know that's a mouthful, but basically they held a vote which was going to attempt to block the Matt Gates five or six who are trying to get rid of Kevin McCarthy with the motion to vacate the chair. But Democrats are pissed off at McCarthy and they voted as well to allow this vote to happen. So by the end of today, maybe in a few hours, maybe by the time you hear this, Kevin McCarthy might no longer be speaker. All the kooks are supporting Kevin, I mean, uh, Matt Gates. You know, he got Andy Biggs, Jim Jordan, quite a crew. Um, but this is kind of funny to me in a sense because Kevin McCarthy has basically kept Trumpism on life support. He's played coy with the crazies. And I guess when you when you live by the sword, you die by the sword. And his crazy caucus is now coming for blood. And he's kind of allowed them to survive. He's given them a lifeline. And now they're eating their own. And I can't help but say this is kind of entertaining. And also the Democrats are now pissed at him because, well, they were never really happy with him. But I think his hope at one time was maybe they vote to keep him in. But their calculation is that he has propped up Trump for too long. He's endorsed the big lie or at least played coy with it. And he's not trustworthy. And so, you know, he's attacked Democrats on TV. He's allowed the Hunter Biden impeachment to go on. Democrats don't trust him. And so they've decided, eh, why don't we just see who else can go in? Because they've obviously calculated he's not trustworthy and not important to keep in. And I mean, it's it's true that like he's he's not been a great compromiser with them. And can he survive? I know all the sane Republic or the more sane Republicans want him to survive, but I think then the question is just if somehow he's ousted, who's next, right? <laughs> Maybe Matt, Matt Gates, his hair gets crazier as he gets crazier. Maybe he just becomes speaker. I, I say just make Matt McGates, Matt Gates, not Mac McGates, 
Matt Gates speaker at this point. That'd be kind of fun. But I, I do actually wonder what Matt Gates's intentions are because he's basically mad at McCarthy for working with Democrats to keep the government open. Some are even peddling conspiracies that I don't believe, but that he's like a Democrat plant. The only reason I think that is funny is because he is kind of helping the Democratic Party in a sense right now. But the, also it's ironic because like a month ago, there was a much more conservative bill that McCarthy was trying to get people to sign on to. And it would have just gutted discretionary spending and different welfare programs, all, all of that jazz. And people like Gates went against it. So instead, McCarthy had to work with Democrats and took a much more moderate deal. So there's something kind of funny to that. I think Matt Gates just wants to be governor. He wants to be powerful. And this is all just self-interest. So anyways, by the time you hear this, we'll see. We might have a new speaker or at least not have the same speaker. And I'll be back tomorrow. A little bit longer episode, but thanks for listening. You can find me on Apple Podcasts, iTunes, Spotify, Podbean. You guys know the rest. Adios. Adios.